0: Simon.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. Dan Schwinn, founder and CEO of Avidyne, is here. We're going to talk about all sorts of different things, including the future of avionics, what's happening in Avidyne, like tons and tons of stuff. And so buckle up. It's going to be a lot of fun. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, I'd like to announce we have a winner of our Aspen E-5 electronic flight instrument, Connor Bolin Bolin of Asbury, New Jersey. He flies a 1970 172K and is the winner of that Aspen E-5, uh, so congratulations. And to anyone else that's out there and thinking about competing, please, all you need to do is download the free social flight mobile app for Apple or Android devices. Get out there, fly, even if you only check in at one airport, even if it's your home airport, you are entered in to win that drawing. And for the top people on our leaderboard, they get extra entries in the drawing, increasing their chances to win. Now, as you might suspect, tonight's broadcast is brought to you by... Avenine, who has been a strong supporter of social flight for many, many years, and I am absolutely uh, thrilled about that. And in addition to that, I am a huge fan of their products. Their uh, IFD series from the 440 to 540 to 550 uh, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we fly with them in our co- company's Bonanza, as well as uh, building it into the T-51 Mustang that is behind me, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Now, Dan Schwinn, if you do not already know him, he founded Avidyne in 1995 to develop modern avionics that were intuitively easy to use, allowing pilots to focus on flying the plane instead of pushing a lot of buttons. As logical as this may seem today, I can tell you that that was not always the case. And we have Dan to thank for much of that, as he was one of the brave pioneers of the glass cockpit era. He did that at a time when FAA certification of these new types of avionics and getting a return on your investment was anything but certain. Uh, Against the odds, Avidyne prevailed, becoming one of only two companies that produce certified flight management systems for general aviation. And their products command a loyal following. As I mentioned here at Social Flight, we do all of our flying behind Avidyne products. And I can tell you uh, as a Kind of midtime IFR pilot uh, that when I have to do hard IMC flying, it is absolutely uh, wonderful to be doing it behind the Avidine navigators because it is it's just intuitive. Uh, I get issued something that I've got to figure out how to do, and it it's always obvious. And uh, I I certainly thank Dan for that. Uh, Dan's a graduate of MIT, an accomplished pilot, and a board member of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, the Small Aircraft Manufacturers Association, and EAA. I'm going to bring Dan on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Dan Schwinn. How are you doing, Dan?
0: Hi, Jeff. Thank you for the kind words of introduction. I'm really happy to be here with you tonight
1: well, I, I appreciate it, And you know we've known each other now for, I think, close to twenty years as as we were talking about kind of a shared history in avionics manufacturing. and i'm I'm very, very sincere about that, uh, what I said during the intro, because I people kind of take for granted where we have come in certification of so many things with avionics. And it wasn't always that way. And I remember when you guys first showed up with the, uh, the IFD concept. So when you were first doing the uh, multifunction displays for aircraft and th- it was against it was against the odds. Uh, what, what do you remember of some of those days?
0: You know, when I started Avidai, it was really about I mean, I was an IFR, a very low time IFR pilot flying behind traditional steam gauges of the you know late 80s or 90s that were in ga airplanes and with a tech background um it just seemed like there had to be a better way to do these things and you know there were um there were other companies out there doing some sort of you know the first thing we did was a moving map they would take something called an argus if you remember that that was an oh, yeah. early moving map and there were a couple of others that were pretty tiny and primitive and we just thought that we could make it a lot easier uh using you know kind of just trying to really bring these things up forward into at the time it was the 20th century and you know that was the primary thought and it's the same today whereas when we're designing products and i do a certain amount of flight tests myself and it's all about how how do we make this easier to use how do we make it more accessible for pilots you know to me easy is is absolutely the same as safer Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like we're making things a lot safer. I know the whole glass cockpit era and the iPad era has, you know, greatly improved the statistics for, uh, for safety. So, you know, uh, the focus on simplicity remains and we're, we're lucky to be, you know, doing this in an era where um, there's just a tremendous number of new things going on. The industry's doing great. Oshkosh was amazing, all that kind of thing. So it's, it's it's a great time to be doing what we're doing.
1: Yeah. It, it's interesting when you talk about uh, safety and what the statistics are, because as I remember going through all the new products that started to come come to GA, it was a little bit of a double-edged sword. Because on one side of it, you had such better you had these new tools for that it helped situational awareness, for example, um, and on the and, and and which is so much better than just flying needles, of course, and putting the picture together in your head. At the same time, the the type of currency that was required to know how to work all of the avionics went up quite a bit. You had to know in the past how to visualize and put your situational awareness together and and do all that. But you started to get products where knowing how you handled all this and how you managed complex flight flight decks and all this were hard to figure out. If you hadn't done it within 30 days, you didn't know how to kind of work the computer and that was a big change, I think, with the products that you were coming out with, especially the ones I've spent the most time with, which, of course, the IFD series. That was
0: true. I mean, if you think about the late 90s when we started out, you were starting to see the first of the VFR GPSs and, you know, they or even the, the Lorans at the time. And they had, you know, one line displays with some text. It was an amazing capability because you could really do area nav to anywhere you wanted and put in a flight plan and a light airplane. And they were relatively small units, but you, you know, you really, you really had to stay up on how to use them. KLN90 was another one, you know, with a little bit bigger screen. Um, and so you went from what you're talking about, which is, you know, the technology was easy, but you had to kind of have all the information in your head and have a paper map out and be using pencils and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. And it went
0: to well, the technology can do a lot of that for you, but you know, let's try and make sure it's not too hard to use. Yeah, I think one of the things you almost hit on there was one of the concerns that we had that we talked about a lot in the early days was what somebody coined the phrase safety homeostasis. And what that meant is as products got easier to use and protected, you know, you had data link weather or you had a traffic system or you had some kind of a terrain warning system or synthetic vision or whatever, people would take more and more risks. And so... The, more, the better you make the stuff, the more risk people would take, and the safety would stay the same. But I'm happy to say that's not what happened. Uh, it, it, things have improved quite a bit in, in the last 20 years in terms of the safety record of GA, and I think a lot of it's due to some of the new tech. I mean, especially, I mean, about a lot of things, you know, having having big primary flight displays was big. Weather, obviously, weather in the cockpit, which was a dream. Remember, the first time we did it was with uh, a system called orbcom, a satellite system called orbcom that had a I t- that. tiny amount of bandwidth and it was really hard to get it across get get any useful data across but for you know it was like the invention of the twelve hundred watt modem when people went from zero to having something um it was it was a huge uh, a huge step forward and then of course that unfolded in all the stuff we have now leading up to sort of ADSB broadcasts all over the u s and um that's just completely changed the way people fly and virtually everybody has it. So same thing with some of the the terrain warning stuff. So those have been just really, really, really big safety enhancements.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I, I also kind of mentioned, but I think a lot of people don't truly appreciate is that the concept of, there's a big difference between, creating what people call a primary flight display or a flight deck or an integrated flight system or all these different things that nowadays there's more and more companies coming out with displays that go in front of you or even moving maps. That is a, a, a huge leap uh, away from the complexity in, in terms of how easy it is to make something like that and get it certified. In terms of that compared to the complexity of a of a navigator, and I mentioned you're one of only two companies that have done that, that have gotten a full FMS that's successful in the market, and people are buying in modern day. Um, what made you decide to bite that off? Because that's a that's a big deal. You know, there have been
0: sort of some technological steps along the way where you know, kind of to get to the next level, you had to make a big leap forward, and you know, the idea of building a high color, high res, high res for the time anyway, um, color moving map was a step. Another really big step was to build a low cost attitude system. Because in, uh, in the early era, there were the sensors that everybody has in their phone now didn't exist. And we had to take sensors that were not really capable of doing this and come up with ways of calibrating them and screening them and uh, You know doing various other kinds of techniques so that we could build an ARS that anybody could afford in GA that was a step now the one that you specific another one you know that people don't give enough credit to is the whole um vhf nav and com i mean this stuff was invented in the 50s it's amdsp you know you got two tones on a vor how hard can it be well the specs for these things are very very tight And and it's a challenge to make one that works right uh, across all the different installations and conditions. But specifically for navigation, um, you know, when area navigation was being invented for GA, it was it was well. First you had the KNS eighty, then you went to the Lorans, and then you had the VFR GPSs, and now we've gotten to the IFR GPSs and really FMSs that can do pretty much anything. Over that period of time, that there was a body of regulations that were developed to do that. And it is, a giant, I mean, it's basically the same regs that you use to fly any size airplane because they can all, they all navigate the same way. The safety of an LPV in a large aircraft is the same as it is in a small one. You have to have all, all the same exact requirements. So, you know, as we were kind of working our way around the flight deck, at some point we got to the, the, the GPS FMS and it was kind of immediately in the post LPV era And we said, gotta have it. And it was quite a project for us to do both the GPS receiver and the FMS. We had done the moving map stuff, so we kind of knew how to do that. Um, And um, we were obviously completely fixated on making the user interface easy. We wanted to design something that was more of an FMS than a sort of a point-to-point navigator with some procedures added on.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to clarify for everyone really quickly, FMS flight management systems. So we're talking about everything you do with flight plans and approaches and holds and all. I mean, I've been inv- involved in development of these systems and it's mind boggling and many of them never see the light of day.
0: It's it's extremely complex. And so I think, you know, as we were going around and saying, you know, we, we've also done engine instruments, these are the kinds of things. But I would say that the GPS FMS was certainly in the top two or three big technological jumps. And one of the things I remember in the early days of WAS of GPS receivers, the spec was developed and it was developed really from the perspective of what are the safety requirements to fly an airplane down to 200 feet of the ground with, with some satellites that are 22,000 miles away. And you had to really closely track the GPS signals in order to be able to compute your position in an adequate fashion and i remember talking some people at Novatel, which is one of the leading gps receiver manufacturers in the world maybe the most technically capable one and as these standards are being developed that became our lpv standards they said we're not sure that this stuff can be implemented it's that difficult wait a minute somebody's making a specification and nobody's actually ever done it so we're not actually sure you can do it and they said yeah that's where we are on this thing so <laughs> now when we started off to do it it was it was kind of right at the edge of technological feasibility to build a you know safety critical LPV receiver now there's a handful of companies around the world that have done it but the, you know that was that was a pretty big uh, leap to uh, in terms of technology and the navigation piece I mean I'm sure everybody realizes this but FMS's represent the automation of 50 years of pilots and controllers cooking up ways to do things. It's an absolutely awful design from the perspective of (laughs) automating something. You know, all this crazy stuff we do with procedure turns, I mean, they're trying to fix it with the T approaches on GPS's, but I mean, it was all invented for, you know, pilots and controllers trying to figure out a way to do things with really primitive nav And And, you know, we've spent, you know, 40 years of fms development automating all these these uh, these crazy procedures that were developed for you know humans and pilots to be able to find their way around with with really yeah. primitive i'll
1: i'll add to that that i think a lot of uh, anyone that, that hasn't been directly involved in this world to give you kind of a peek behind the scenes of how the <laughs> how the sauce is made a, a lot of people look at it and say oh there's these big companies out there that have jet you know, navigation systems. Yeah. Oh, we're just going to make a version for general aviation. That's simple. We'll just kind of boil it all down. And I, again, I've been in, in those things. It's ugly. Like you literally get these things that work. It's like the difference between a regular ca- Casio calculator and someone that understands reverse Polish uh, entry or whatever it's called now for yeah. HP calculators. Like it, it makes doesn't make any sense. I remember a company that created a whole version of it. And at the end of it, we're like, where's direct two? And yeah. everyone's face went blank. They're like, business aviation or commercial pilots, there's no such thing. It doesn't even exist. I'm like, that's kind of the foundation of where you start as a GA pilot. Right. And no one even knew how to do direct two.
0: <laughs> yeah. The early, I mean, you know, this kind of standardized, they're not really that standardized, but the somewhat standardized business aviation and commercial aviation FMSs, you know, they were designed. To, uh, you know at the era they were designed you know it was just a question of getting the functionality in there There was no heat paid whatsoever to how hard it was going to be to do because those pilots are you know they're in a simulator twice a year with for five days getting you know recurrent training on this stuff and they fly every day and so it you know kind of didn't matter how complicated it was or obscure they were expected to know how to do it um when we started doing our fms project we had um the, the lead who's still our lead on the project came from Honeywell and had done a big airplane FMS. And I said, okay, all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that helps you find, you know, that that when, once you've got a flight plan entered and navigates your way around, we want to do all of that the same way, which is regulatorily specified pretty much. Um, but the whole way you interface with this thing, let's just forget everything that you ever knew about. it, And we'll just start over on that. And we did. And, you know, that's how we ended up with what we have. Which is probably the most recently designed FMS.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, even though it's, you know, oh, sort yeah. of 10 to 15 years since we first certified it, it's the most recently designed certified FMS. And we Very had the true. benefit of those that went before us and the regular regulations had settled down a little bit, and then we just had a complete fixation on user interface.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, and and it certainly shows. And again, I just wanted to point that out because there's a lot of there's a lot of fantastic products on the market for for panels and for redoing your panel that that do an awful lot of things. In the end, if you're going to fly IFR, almost every one of them, you have to get a navigator to go with it. That those companies don't make. Um, so it's it's just an interesting thing to me. And in, in that, your core competency is with those those key things. Um, another area that I wanna get some thoughts on um, before we move to kind of more modern stuff is where you came from with synthetic vision. That's really kind of close to my heart as a revolution. It's where my background actually was. And I wanna show you as a little Easter egg here, a couple, a few pictures from a trip we did. We went out to Glacier National Park, lots of terrain to say the least uh, when you're doing this. And I, as someone that's a real critic of synthetic vision, this is an IFT 550 <laughs> and a 440 below it. Your synthetic vision and terrain descri- depictions are really, to an expert, at an outstanding level of quality of what you're, what you actually see on a screen. And that doesn't come cheap when you're looking outside and this is what you're seeing and you're able to get this type of quality and uh, and that goes along with the fact, of course that here we have an ift five fifty that's your navigator, which looks like this actually should be a primary flight display right in front of you. Um, tell me a little bit about your leap in this area because that's that's a topic that we didn't cover too much in in your the evolution of Avidine.
0: So we yeah, we did synthetic vision and at that time you had some kind of, the the whole 3d rendering thing was becoming more commonplace on pcs and so forth but um, you had some wireframe ish stuff coming starting to show up in aviation and we just said that's just way too you know basically ugly for what we want to do and so uh, the other challenge we had was that you know, we didn't have unlimited graphics power and processing power to do this. And one of the things, for example, that, that, that you can notice in our synthetic vision if you know exactly what to look for is we had to come up with a multiple resolution terrain renderer. So the stuff that was closer to you would be rendered at a higher resolution, but the stuff that's out in infinity is, is rendered at a much lower resolution just because we ran out of, you know, processing power to do that. So there, there were certain techniques we came up with for that. Another one that you can see in your top picture there that is is really actually pretty difficult is getting the edges of the water to look right. It turns out that you have two different databases, one that says where the water is and another one that says where the terrain is, and and you put them together and you get all these wacky jaggies and things like that. We spend a ton of time, and we're here in Florida, so there's water everywhere. We spend a ton of time trying to get that to look right. so, and then, you know, one of the things that in this picture really demonstrates is that we're using pretty contrasty colors to make it kind of pop a little bit there. And, you know, the brown is intended to be sort of, you know, above the tree line kind of stuff. And um, so, you know, we, we again, we spent a lot of time really on two things. One was um, getting it to fit inside of the, of the processing power we had when we were doing it. For the first time and the second one was making it really really look nice and make the the edges look good make the mountains look good make it kind of usable if you look at this depiction right here you know if you had to you you wouldn't have too much trouble finding your way through that valley right uh, and one of the things you know that always kind of is a little bit terrifying at trade shows when people come up to me and they tell me about these awesome scud rimming, running trips they did through <laughs> mountains by staring at the display. And it's like, you know, that's not how you, that's not really what it's for. But, um, you know, uh, I can remember right after when we first launched a, a, a terrain type system on on some product and, you know, I had a really excited customer come and tell me about this run he did in the Rockies. And I was like, wow, that's really not how you're supposed to use this stuff. But uh, when people find themselves in a situation, it's 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 super super helpful, and we just wanted to make it as easy to interpret as possible. On right. um, the IFD 550, you know, by by especially by current standards, you know, that's still only a, like a five and a half inch display. So, you know, trying to make it look good and not be that huge was was another you know significant challenge.
1: Yeah. Um, tell me a bit, a little bit about the 2D though, because it. it... It's interesting because the quality of the 2D is very similar to what you see. When we used to do synthetic vision, the answer was, it's not 2D. (laughs) It's the same thing looking straight down.
0: That's right, and that's what the answer is here in this case, which is it's it's just a uh, perspective thing. So you've got the so-called egocentric perspective, which is what you are showing first, which is out the window view. We have the exocentric view, which is the one that we have where you're up and behind the airplane. And then you've got effectively the straight from above view, which is the map that you were, that you were showing there. Uh, those are all just different ways to render the exact same data. Yeah. Um, and that's what we do. That's a picture, I'm not sure where you are in that one, but uh, you know that's an example of something that's hard to make the edges of the water look right, because you've got flatlands and water you know where the water database says the edge of the water is, and where the elevation is. Any any kind of minor differences there, you end up with all this weird stuff going on. So we put a huge amount of time yeah. into that.
1: Well, it it definitely works. And then the last thing I'll I'll also say uh, that I I would also like to know kind of some background on is this is, this is my other favorite thing in the cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a gimmick. This is on my yoke. And uh, to all the uh, social flight folks out there, if you happen to fly behind Avidyne and you have this, uh, I can tell you, Ben, um, my son, Ben, uh, created a great clip for this for yokes that, that helps you put it on and take it off and things like that. And uh, it's just a 3D print. Email me. I'm info at socialflight.com. Happy to send out the file to you. But this this I have made flights where I barely reach my hand off the yoke because I can do just about everything using this. So. Uh, as far as I know, you were the first folks to do that. Tell me about that.
0: As far as I know, we're the only ones still doing it. The, you know, we, one, of the, one of the commitments we made when we designed the IFT 540, which was the first of the series to come out, was that, that they would have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi built in. And, you know, we said this is going to be a connectivity-centric product, which, you know, still to this day, I think we're the only navigator with it built in. Really, one of the only products, in the aviation products, and you start to see a few, but with both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in, I'm not thinking of anything else right off the bat. Um, so, you know, that opened up a world of things on Wi-Fi, which you would typically use for like an iPad or a, or like a computer, or you know, the, some of the portable devices happen to be Wi-Fi. Um, some of those devices also support support Bluetooth. But we had we had done a keyboard on our R9 flight deck. And put it right where you could use it it was bigger than the portable one you're using but you know a lot of the elements of our system were designed to be super easy to use with a small with a limited number of button keyboard and so after we had done all that work and then we're building the IFD, and of course we didn't have room for it until we built the atlas which is really designed for jets and is much bigger um you know we didn't have room for all those buttons And so we said, you know, look, we can we can have a low cost keyboard that we that we send out with these things. And that'll get all the benefits that we had when we had our installed keyboard. And we did that. And I will tell you that, you know, 60 percent of our customers don't even know they have that thing and could care less. And the other 40 percent don't think they could live without. So I'm perfectly happy for that set of circumstances, because for the people like you who really like it. It's absolutely a terrific thing, and I don't know if you've ever done it, but, you know, you can enter a flight plan really just by typing a clearance into that thing with the dots in between, and you'll be surprised what happens on the screen. Uh, you know, people can that's that. news
1: to me. I just learned something I didn't know because I put them in and then hit the enter and then hit the enter. Yeah, I can just put dots between them all. Is this a training session? I like this. You should try this out sometime and see you know, if it
0: works right, but... Um, yeah, so so that is something. The other thing, of course, that's true is what happened with the integration with, I mean, I'm not sure, I guess the, the iPad was out when the IFD came out and it was starting to get popular. But now, you know, you have very many pilots who fly with an iPad. We have our own IFD100 app that goes on there. Are a lot of people in the U.S. use ForeFlight. There's some other Ones that are really popular in the U.S. And, and, and completely different ones in other parts of the world that are sort of specific for that. We've supported all these different uh, app uh, vendors, and to some people, especially if they only have room for a 440 in their panel, you know, the iPad integration is a fabulous thing. And so you see people, some of them actually use the keypad and the iPad at the same time. They're totally work together. And uh, you know, if there's anything I've learned, it's that you give people multiple ways to do things and different people are gonna do things different ways and they're gonna be absolutely convinced that that is the only possible right way to do it. And when we do human factor studies with multiple pilots, this is what happens. We'll get in, like we do all this multi-touch stuff where we have, you can do things by touch, you can do it by using a knob or something, or you can use the remote keyboard. You put five pilots and you give them kind of the same general you know set of tasks and they're all going to do it differently and they're all going to be convinced that they couldn't believe that anybody would have another way of doing it that be it could be as good as theirs so you know the keyboard is a great example of that i see a lot of people who i think what you said just velcro on their yolks and just type away it's really quick especially for in rude stuff
1: yeah well i i and it's going to be quicker now that i use the dot um but again i having done it, like you said, it's easy to fall into one of those categories. Do I use the other things? Yeah. But if I'm typing letters, the letters are right there. I mean, I don't have to spin or index or anything and like type it in. And, and those are often, as you mentioned, in situations where you're getting, um, you know, some, a a lot of stuff thrown at you. So the way I, I wouldn't say that I have to use my keyboard when it's like a direct to, uh, for me, it's really helpful when all of a sudden I've got to, I've got I've told them I'm I'm ready to launch. They've just issued me a clearance with you know ten waypoints or fifteen waypoints along the way, and I've got to get all that in there. That I can get it in there really quickly and still get out within a five minute window or whatever I need to 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 get off the ground. So I I think it really does um, does a, a, a have a big impact. Uh, You touched on something else that I'd like to talk about, and that has to do with interoperability. Uh, I have, regardless of the manufacturer, um, I have been for a very long time an enormous proponent of what's often referred to as the federated panel or best of breed panel. I've written about it. Um, The idea that all of the folks, for instance, just about everybody on this board, have to play with each you know work with each other well and and also kind of earn the continue to earn the customer uh, through upgrades and updates and improvements I find you know makes a big difference Tell me a little bit about being part of that community where there's both competitors and and folks that are make different products than you um, you've worked very closely with quite a few companies what's what's that world like?
0: Yeah, so we, you know, we try and work across the continuum of, you know, more integrated stuff that's mostly from us to trying to support every possible interface for every, uh, you know, all the different manufacturers out there. And especially in the last couple of years, some of that has been on portable device, you know, support because people want to use their portable devices with their IFDs and things. So, you know, I think one of the challenges is that, um, you know, the industry standards aren't all that great. So us, you know, as a manufacturer, it's, it's pretty tough to pull a interface specification out of, you know, RTCA or whatever and implement it. A lot of times they're, they don't have as much in them as you need to to get the features that people really want.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot of times it's not perfectly clear exactly how this stuff is, going, is supposed to work. So, you know, that's where we end up having to work together with all the manufacturers. And, you know, there'll be times when we'll, you know, sometimes it'll be from our own lab, or sometimes it'll be a customer, or sometimes it'll be one of the other manufacturers. And they'll say, you know, have a look at this thing that's happening. And you could easily get in a situation, and, you know, there are some manufacturers who are like this who just say, you know, we did it to the spec, that's the way it works, you know, that's, you know, if, if it doesn't work for you, then, you know, too bad. Um, but, you know, the, uh, you know, we've really tried to, and, and you know, this goes on forever because people, you know, are constantly finding little things um, that where, where, where different products can, can work together. So, you know, every new version of Avidine, you know, IFT software has some little tiny fixes in it that matter to somebody who has a particular collection of other products. That's just sort of continuous improvement. Some of those collections, we have, you know, we have, we support 180 different interfaces. We've got a lab with a mountain of stuff in it, but you don't get every single thing. And so that's why we're continuing, you know, continuing to, to do that and continue to work with manufacturers to other manufacturers to make things, uh, you know, work as, work as well as possible and seamlessly as possible and innovative features, you know, that require multiple boxes to cooperate. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example, and it's a wireless example. You know, people use four flight with Stratus, four flight with avidine boxes, and then they came along and they wanted to use Stratus boxes with avidine IFDs. And so we worked with four flight. Four flight worked with the Stratus, but that didn't. Making that three-way thing work took quite a bit of work, and that was, I'd say, for me maybe the third uh, most popular question at Oshkosh. People hmm. coming up and they're trying to get their portable devices working together. And we do support it all. So, you know, they were like, hey, how do I do this? And we had you know, several people there who could answer those questions. Um, but that's an example where we had to work with you know diff- different manufacturers to get it work. That's not a Panama example, but we do it with the Panama guys as well.
1: Wow. <laughs> so um let's let's talk first about uh advantage a little bit. Um, uh, and, and then we'll talk Oshkosh. Y- you you guys have a long history with Cirrus. Uh, that goes goes way back. And you've made quite a few investments in that. Uh, and now another one. Tell me a little bit about this working with Cirrus, uh, the affinity for that platform and the investments that you're continuing to make that that lead you towards Vantage and also maybe when's the rest of the world going to also be on on the Vantage platform?
0: So, you know, early days working with Cirrus, they were, and it, you know, at the time, they were absolutely completely focused on being the first to market with new technologies. And a lot of these new technologies, talk about data link, weather, terrain, or whatever, were really happening in the aftermarket first. And a lot of the aircraft manufacturers were taking their time uh, implementing these things, but not Cirrus. Cirrus wanted to do this stuff right away, first to market, use it as a major selling tool, and they did it and it worked. And it's a huge part of their ongoing success, which of course is amazing. Today, they're, you know, just doing terrific. Uh, so, you know, the Vantage represents our third generation of flight deck. And, you know, we're going to Cirrus because that, we're going to Cirrus first, because that's kind of what was our, you know, first big success. And, you um, there's, you know, 4,000 plus Cirrus out there that are, you know, have our first generation flight decks or nothing. And, you know, that's what we targeting with the, with the very first vantage, the one that we've shown, which is the 12 inch screen. It's a fabulous product. It's going to be, it's great in those airplanes. I'm flight testing it now, uh, but it's too big for your bonanza. So, um, uh, so it's really designed for the Cirrus and a small, of course, Cirrus is a side stick controller. So you you don't have the yoke sitting there in the middle using up panel space. And that's really the big factor of, you know, how much room there is to work with in these flight decks. So Mm -hmm. uh, Vantage is coming coming right along. Uh, I should be hopefully flight testing the latest and greatest version of it tomorrow sometime. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're just kind of going through or in the, you know, user interface, cleanup phase for sure. Um, and then as we've talked about before, there's another version of it, which is almost as big. It's a little bit shorter. It's a widescreen rather than more rectangular, but it will fit perfectly where your six pack is and where many other people's, you know, who have a six pack, it's designed to kind of go right into that space. Yeah. Uh, So, so that'll be the, you know, the advantage for, for, you know, for you know the, the the vast majority of of aircraft that uh, that have a yoke in the middle of the panel. Now, of course, there's a, the most extreme example. Of course, is the lake amphib, where the yoke is about four inches from the top of the panel, and you have one room for one three-inch gadget on top of that. So that's a little harder to deal with. I don't think we have anything for that.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because it it really does kind of go to the uh, the balance you have to do between OEMs and the aftermarket. And, and I'm curious about this from your perspective, like what's it like since you are the decision maker and have been in the past about, as an as heading up an avionics company, how you kind of balance uh, OEM platforms versus aftermarket. Other, it, It's always been attractive to companies. They put a ton of effort, all the big companies into like winning OEMs and focusing on OEMs. And for some companies, um, you know, L3 smart deck created a, a what at the time I think was a wonderful integrated flight deck. And then that's the end of it because they didn't win their platform. It seems like aftermarket is, has a little more broader reach, I guess, or or less to do it. How do you balance that? So uh, depending on
0: what the technology is, in a lot of cases, it's easier to launch it and get it accepted into the aftermarket. Um, All of the, Innovations that were done, uh, you, know, you know, sort of in the 2000, 2010 era, I mean, I think virtually all of them were, went, were in the aftermarket first. Data link weather, all the traffic systems, terrain warning systems, all this kind of stuff was showing up in the aftermarket first, and sometimes on portable devices first, just so people could implement it quickly and into whatever airplane they already had. Um, As I said, Cirrus was really way more aggressive than a lot of other companies at that time. I think now you're in in a situation where a lot of the sort of mainstream innovations that happen in glass, you know, in sort of big glass panels are now pretty well established in the OEM market and people are saying, what's the next big thing? And there are next big things coming. In the the retrofit market, um, there are just still so many airplanes that have got, you know, relatively trying to be kind
1: here, you know, <laughs> there's you early, know there's a lot of old radios out there, my friend.
0: <laughs> um, and, uh, so there's, there's just, there's so much, uh, opportunity there. And I think, you know, for a company like us, um, we can come up with something that people get, you know, just really excited about it and then they can implement it right away in the airplane that they've got. So that's nice. And working with the OEMs is, 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 is great too. Um, the businesses don't, aren't always, they're, I mean, they're not quite counter cyclical, but they will be, you know, one of them will be strong and the other may or may not, you know, that kind of thing. So there's some benefits to it. A lot of technology crossover, um, you know, so, you know they both have their pros and cons. You know, as as somebody who's really focused on, you know, doing things that are either innovative or totally focused on ease of use, you know, I can do something like that, and we can stick we can stick it in the aftermarket. Yeah. Whenever we get it certified, boom, there it goes. Yeah. Um And uh,
1: it's that's a lot harder to do at the OEM level. That makes sense. So you you brought up AirVenture. How was your, how was your show? Your booth, every time I was over there, your booth was absolutely mobbed. We did a quick little, uh, little, uh, spent a little bit of time together, but, uh, absolutely yeah. mobbed. And, uh, what's, what was on everybody's mind this year?
0: So it, it was, I mean, obviously EAA has published their statistics, uh, earlier last week, and it was a record air venture in terms of attendance, a number of airplanes, a number of campers and a bunch of other things. Uh, the... What our cycle usually is, is that you know, so it goes Monday through Sunday and Monday is, you know, your Uber enthusiasts who came in the week before who are camping and are going to be there for a lot of days. And they want to get out and they want to see, you know, everything that's going on. And avionics is high on their list. So, you know, Monday morning is usually pretty busy. Monday morning this year, I had some sort of a meeting. I think it was with the FAA that went till about 9.30 or so, and then I went to the back of Hangar C to go to our booth, which is in the front of the Hangar C, and I couldn't get there. The hangar was just absolutely packed, and it was like trying to get to the front row of a concert. You just had to, you know, kind of sort of push your way through all the people, and our booth was mocked. And that was great and you know it was a lot of people we had by the way we had a ton of people owners people who already own our equipment who came through which was great and then we had a whole bunch of people that were prospective but we were absolutely packed on monday morning i thought maybe as busy as this ever been but then came tuesday and wednesday when things usually settle down a little bit and it didn't settle down at all it was super 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 busy Tuesday and Wednesday mornings. I mean, but by mornings, I mean up until when the air show starts, which is when people generally head outside. So, I mean, it was it was just absolutely more busy than we have ever seen before. And it wasn't, you know, EA had, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like, you know, three or 4% more visitors than last year, and the numbers are staggering. But I, I feel like we had, you know, 100% more visitors on Tuesday and Wednesday than we did last year. It was just so busy. So, you know i think that that is obviously you know what we were hoping for and what's you know good because obviously we're not the only exhibitor there and the exhibitors were all really busy so it's really good you know it's a good sign for the industry and uh so i mean we just had it we just had a really really terrific uh air venture um you know there were there were just I, I, I one of the things is that you know like if we think last year you know the immediate post-covid year then there was like this you could you could attribute things to sort of a pent-up demand or whatever this year i just think it's that people you know light plane flying has become more popular some of that was induced by COVID because people didn't want to go on an airline and they wanted to still move around and, you know you could be in an airplane in a little airplane with you know one other person or whatever and you didn't have to worry about all that you know big airport catching something or whatever but I just think, I'm, and I'm hopeful, and I think the statistics are showing it, that you know, light plane aviation for recreational or transportation or business purposes is on a, a really significant upswing. Um, yeah. But manufacturers can't build enough airplanes, and they have really complicated supply chains. So you know, they can't build you know, X one year and 3X the next year. It's just not possible. Um, but I but I think you're I think we're at, you know, in the in the in a in a period of, you know, really greater uh, interest in, in people flying themselves around. And it's just wonderful to see that from both yeah. the Avidar perspective, obviously, and also EA
1: perspective. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, obviously, uh, you and I and other people in the industry always are there early. I remember commenting that Sunday felt like Monday, like it was. Even though nothing was open, it was crazy how busy it was, and um, and it was it was an issue for EAA because
0: um, you know basically it's a safety issue when you're setting up a booth and you've got all these crates and forklifts and stuff running around and people are coming by and they want you to demo something and you're like in setup mode with you know hundreds of other vendors so uh, yeah it was uh, there was a bit of a challenge associated with that in the sense that. Uh, you know people get there early they want to be the first to see whatever they're out on monday they know it won't be or on sunday and they know it won't be crowded and you know so that was really a challenge and i think you're seeing um well more and more people getting in you know friday saturday
1: mm-hmm. i always
0: i mean i always arrive on sunday came sunday morning this year um but it's there's already a lot of people there by then
1: yeah so what were the, what was the hot topics? What, what was it that um, when people were coming up to the Avadine booth uh, that that was really hot this year? The number one topic was that, you know, the
0: obsolescence of the first generation of GPS navigators and the fact that we have, um, you know, direct sliding replacements was a very hot topic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: People are saying I am, you know, when this thing breaks, I'm getting one of yours or maybe even before. And so you know despite the fact that we've been making you know uh, compatible slide-in products for eight years there's a lot of people who just got to see it to believe it they just so like it, can that really work and so that was surprisingly enough that was a big question
1: um that's I'm, that's fascinating after so many years that there's still a misconception in the market or or not understanding it i mean that's what we did right we did it on our own, our own plane i mean if you the, the fact is, you slide it in, you 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 configure things, and then you oh. sign it all. Get it signed off. If you're not an AMP or you sign it off if you are an AMP. It it unless you're dealing with a non-WAS installation, yeah. then that's all there is. And if you're dealing with WAS, you have to change the antenna and the cable.
0: That's it. Right. It's pretty straightforward, and I think that there's a lot of people for whom they didn't need to worry about it. And they weren't, you know, I mean, obviously, if you take a look at these, a lot of these older aircraft, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to upgrade lots of different aspects of the airplane. So I think we're coming back into a, a GPS navcom swing. Also, you know, there's other things that are pretty, you know, in larger displays, autopilots, whatever. Um, so, um, but yeah, that was that was probably the number one topic, and there were literally hundreds of people who came that want wow. to talk about that. I was I was kind of astonished. One of the uh, things that I,
1: that I think is so important about that is we, we're dealing, uh, as you and I have spoken about in the past, with a real challenge with labor in 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 all of aviation maintenance and certainly in the avionics world. That makes the concept of slide-in and also the concept that you can do things with your local shop, at least, even more important. Tell me a little bit about how Avidyne's approach this and, and dealers and, and how to... How to handle this challenge that we're all facing? Because so it's a really, really big problem if you can't get your aircraft maintained and certainly not get upgrades in when you need them.
0: Well, this is uh, this is maybe one of the biggest challenges facing our industry now from an avionics perspective, but also, I mean, getting your engine overhauled or you know, lots of simple things. We have an airplane with uh, the engines over. It's TBO, but it's still healthy, and we're like, well, you know, let's just go ahead and do the engine one of these days. And we scrounge; scratched can't buy an engine. We found we found a slightly used engine, and then we couldn't find anybody to put it on. And the airplane's still airworthy and healthy, but we're like, oh, this is just amazing. But on the avionics side, you know, one of our big shops, um, I was out there visiting them before AirVenture, and they have half as many staff as they did three years ago, hmm. and they've gone to all different places to you know, uh, uh, airlines and to, um, you know, uh, some of the um, fractional operators and they've gone into, you know, different careers and they've just gone off and done other other things. And, you know, it's a real challenge. So, I mean, the good thing about our sliding replacement if somebody happens to have the earlier product is that you don't need a, um, you know, a, a sort of a full service avionics shop and a two week stay to get it done, you can you can you know you can uh, ha- have an A and P slide it in, and we have tons and tons of documentation and videos on how to do this. It's really easy to configure. Um, and uh, of course, if you want to do more products, and we're talking about rewiring, then you got to find an avionics shop. But you may find that uh, for a lot of them, that that uh, you know you're scheduling out you know a whole bunch of months, and um, you know. So I think as an industry, we're we're kind of shoveling. Uh, less product through that channel because there's less people to put it in. Mm-hmm. So the slide-in helps that. And you know, I mean, one of the things we're doing with the Vantage is we're really trying to make we're thinking more about installing it. Now, obviously, we're lucky because we have an it's aimed at the Sirius install base, and all those airplanes have a lot of similarity. Uh, Similar in wire diagrams. There's obviously there's about six different engines and there's a couple different panel configurations or whatever, but it's much more uh, consistent than your guy who shows up with a '80s 182 and you take a look at the instrument panel. It's the only one like that in the world. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them is the only one like that in the world. Like all different. And so, you know, um, so but what we're trying to do on the on the Cirrus is make it more make our Uh, The the Vantage is is not a box, it's a, you know, it's kind of a cockpit, it's a whole flight deck installation and we're trying to document that and make it super easy for the installer so they can have a higher throughput. Now that will require an avionics shop or meat shop of some sort to put that thing in, but uh, the Vantage in, you know, two screen Vantage in, um, but we're still trying to make it simple. And certainly some of the dealers that I talked to at the show, I mean, they're talking about, you know, can I get two of these through a shop in a week? And, you know, the answer is you might be able to, if you really, you know, kind of get the hang of it. So, yeah, uh, and you have, you know, that would take, that would take, you know, two, three people working on it, but that's what some of the, uh, some of the shops want to do is just kind of, you know, do these upgrades on a sort of mass produced basis, if you want to call it
1: that. Well, the idea that you're, which, you know, I've heard is that that you're going to do panels with it, that, that it's not just the avionics go figure it all out. It's, here's the replacement panel and that that may even be something that you end up doing for Bonanzas or any of the other planes that are out there. That makes a huge difference, even though all the, everything's unique. Everyone's welcome to customize everything outside the box, uh, if they need to. But the idea that it's there and would bolt in is a huge leap of, of time. I think
0: that's the objective. And the other piece that's really important to us is the consistency of the installations. So again, when you roll into a shop with your 80s 182, not only does the panel itself is the only one in the world that has that particular array of equipment mounted like that, but the wiring is the only one in the world that's wired like that. And so for, for our dealers, they actually act as system integrators. Every time that somebody rolls in with an airplane and says, I want to have, it, you know, I want to have an Aspen, an Avanine, JPI, one of these things, I want you to hook it up together, they're acting as a system integrator. Yeah. And that takes time. And it's also it's a lot of what we do with our tech support and a lot of what we do with our install manuals and so forth and so on. So, you know, it's, it's great that we have lots and lots of dealers that are good at this because it's not very easy. Um, but it's it's time consuming. And in the case of the Cirrus, we're fortunate in that those airplanes are mostly the same. And so we can make this a lot more systematic, and hopefully make it a lot quicker, and have the outcome be very consistent, which which is a, which is a big priority for us. So you mentioned the panels. We're going to provide you know the, the bent piece of sheet metal, which is the panel and the overlays that let you make it whatever you know sort of color and so forth you want. Um, but the other piece is the harnessing. So we're putting a lot of effort into trying to make the wire harnessing as consistent as possible and is and it's easy and, and offer people and of course the installers don't have to take it but offer some pre-made parts there that people can use um, to to again expedite the
1: whole the whole yeah. process. Well one of the things that that also plays into is uh, my understanding is that Avidyne doesn't own doesn't require dealers to be uh, you know licensed uh, like certified repair stations which is a much smaller group. Of, of, of folks out there, so that narrows the labor force down dramatically. What went into that decision, and, and how does that make it more and more possible for AMP shops and, and other places to start getting involved in installing your equipment?
0: You know, so people talk about it in terms of being a 145 or being an A&P, which is one division, but I really look at it as, you know, I think of especially our, you know, the, the they're all 145 split, but, the, but our, our installing dealers that do a lot of different brands a lot of the time in a lot of different airplanes, and they are really tremendous system integrators and people, they don't get anywhere near enough credit for being able to do that. But not everybody can do that. And so I think from the out, when we decided to do the slide and replacement IFD series, then it was like, okay, this will be accessible to a wider range of of installers than can do a from scratch avionics installation in an airplane that there's the only one in the whole world that looks like that so you know it, it's just it's just a different kind of a project for people that have you know uh, sort of a different level of capability also i mean obviously our, our shops when they do big installs those, i mean those airplanes can be in there for a while getting getting things put in we have a we have a local flying club that we're supporting, and a bunch of our employees are members of, and so forth. And they got a—they traded in their two old airplanes for another old airplane, which happens to be a Cardinal. And, you know, they—I guess they did what any self-respecting group of people that work at an avionics company would do, which is they went out and collected all these great avionics to put in this thing. And, I mean, it's fabulous, but it took a long time. <laughs> To get the whole installation done, and I think you know that's one of the things that that is also a benefit of, you know, the slide-in thing is that you know if you, it, and this is especially true for fleets, if you know if you can get it done in two days rather than two weeks for a lot of people, that's a huge
1: difference maker. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So uh, what's uh, Vantage? We all are you know waiting for and 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 uh really looking forward to obviously the Sears guys are really short on the list and then you've got uh expanding it to other things. Anything else that you can give us a little tidbit or taste of what is coming maybe for the IFD world, maybe for anything else that's out there. Um what's what should we be kind of watching for?
0: Well I'll tell you something that we showed at Oshkosh but we didn't really um, go I, I mean I think we didn't really go out of our way which was, it was the first time that we had ever shown the fact that Advantage can play, can show sectional charts on the big screen. Ooh. And so I was actually flying with our head of flight test the other day, who, you know, was in the middle of this. And I went through and popped those up for the first time that either of us had actually seen it in the airplane. And we were both like, oh, that people are gonna really, really like that. They're really, really gonna like that. You know, big, bright, and colorful, and has all the lovely little details that those things have on them that they're they're not available in any other database. So that's something that we we had in the systems that were at Oshkosh, and anybody could do it. But of course, you know, we we don't have a canned demo, and so I I think that a lot of cases that got turned off, and people looking at something else, and and so that was I mean that's certainly worth a mention because that's a really really nice thing to have. And that, one of the things that we that put is, that
1: there, I want to pause on that because that is very very cool. And now I wanna go back in time and go check that out at your booth at Oshkosh. Is that, is, that, is that any chance of that ever being in the future of the IFDs?
0: Probably not on the IFDs. And you know we did a five inch um, sectional moving map product really early in our history and it was great and there was nothing else like it, but it's just not really enough screen real estate for those things.
1: You need need something big like Vantage for it.
0: Really benefits from being bigger or closer. That's why people can have success with an iPad um, with the sectionals and they can kind of use it really nicely on a small iPad. Like I use a mini, but I mean, I can hold the mini eight inches away from my eyes and look at the stuff in great detail, whereas your panel mount stuff is more like 24 inches away. So the big screen makes it just really, really a lot more usable and useful. So... You know, we're not really going to try and put those on the IFDs, but I mean, all of our big screen stuff going forward will have it. So that was, that's a little teaser that, you know, we did at, at uh, Oshkosh and some people got to see it. Um, other than that, you know, I can say that uh, we're, we're, you know, we're continuing to work on new features uh, of the IFD and there's, uh, you know, obviously our big release right now was 10, and we're up to 10.3.1, and there's going to be a 10.3.2 coming out that's going to support the the Vantage. Um, And I like to say that an awful lot of people who have IFDs, or you're thinking about getting, but people who have IFDs are not taking as much advantage of the visual approach feature, which is in 10.3. Some people are, I mean, I met a number of people at, at AirVenture, they're like, ah, you know, what do I need the latest version for? It's like well, because you spend a huge amount of money putting a bunch of really nice new stuff in there, and you can have it for the you know low low price of free. So yeah. You might want to you might want to think about doing this. I mean, obviously you might have to pay somebody to install it, but you know it's it's there's some great stuff in there. Yeah, it's,
1: really it's cool. a USB key and an installation. I mean, that is one of the things I love so much about what you are doing, as well as again a lot of the kind of other. Players in your tier that are right there, you know, all working together is this idea that you keep improving your product and you keep standing by the customer. And like you just said, visual approaches, that was free. That's, that's an awesome new feature. And, and before we kind of also close out, I'll, I'll show you another thing I like, which <laughs> um, you may or may not have seen, but you'll get a kick out of. This is the Mustang behind me, and that's a real <laughs> image. We're using it as a taxi camera with the 550 also.
0: Well, you can do that, too, with it. <laughs> Turns th- out it works great. <laughs> I had a uh, – um, not so much in the light airplanes, but the helicopter guys do this all the time. Because helicopter guys tend to have cameras all over the place, and their IR, they're looking at their hook, or they're looking at them as backup cameras or whatever it is they're doing, and they need some place to put them. So we got a lot of people who use that, um, that capability, the IFDs. And, you know, the, I, it was interesting while, while we were at Oshkosh, you know, Gary Reeve, who's very well known in the, in the business and does a lot of training things. You know, I had a great discussion with him where I said, Gary, other than when you are landing and the overcast is below, say, a thousand feet and you really got to fly the whole instrument approach. You don't need to just get below the clouds. You need to actually really fly the approach. I said, every single landing, you ought to be using the visual approach. And we had a big discussion about that. I mean, one of the things is because we show the traffic pattern and you get to set what size you want to be, you can enter the pattern perfectly every single time at at an airport that you've never been at before, which I think is really important. And also, I think a key thing is for all of us who fly single engine airplanes, which I do, um, a typical three degree instrument approach is kind of flat. And if you have any issue on final, you're not gonna make the runway. Mm-hmm. And there's just no reason to fly in that flat all the time. So people are like, oh, I'll just use my RNAV approach. It's much better to set up a visual, use a little bit steeper glide path. Maybe you go out and, and you see, you know, what does your airplane really glide at? If you, if you had an engine failure, you know, three or four miles out, um, you know, if you went to, you know, one notch of flaps, what is this thing really gonna do, what is it really gonna do in terms of a glide path? And put that in as your, as your standard visual approach. So, you know, that's a feature that we've added that you know unlike some of the other things out there people can use every single flight and get a significant amount of benefit out of it and you know and i think not that people generally have problems with their engines when they're landing but you know i mean it's it's, it's a nice comfort factor um to know okay i can glide this thing all the time
1: well the other thing too is night night flights right i mean i i fly into an airport that might as well be a carrier when you're like coming in at night and it's blackout because there's nothing, not a lot of lights on the ground all over the place, you're blind in some aspects of that pattern. You cannot actually see the runway lights in some cases. And the idea that you can now fly a pattern and turn and you know when you turn on that final, instead of having some faith of the compass says, when I make the turn right now, the runway should be in front of me, you know it's gonna just appear perfectly in front of you. VFR, night flying. I think that's absolutely fantastic.
0: That's true. And again, if you set yourself a four degree glide slope, you're going to probably have plenty of terrain clearance over, over yeah. anything. Because that's, absolutely. you know, that's...
1: Well, Dan, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to join us this evening. It has been fascinating as usual. I hope you'll come back on the show in the future so we can dig deeper and talk more about whatever the latest stuff that you guys have coming out at Avidine.
0: Jeff, it's been a great pleasure. And I had fun discussing with that. I hope people enjoyed, you know, hearing about old times of avionics sort of relatively speaking and some of the stuff we're doing now as you can, I mean, I had a really great time at Oshkosh just talking to all kinds of people about all kinds of different things in avionics, whether or not it had anything to do with Avidine. And uh, so, you know, I can do this all day long and I, I really look forward to the chance to come back.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'll be doing more videos with your products as, as always. And, uh, And thanks for supporting Social Flight as well. It makes all of this possible for everybody. My great pleasure to do so. All right. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be off for the next two weeks out flying and doing tons of adventures. And some of that will be on our YouTube channel as well. You can see many of the different things we've talked about, build things on our Mustang, all on Social Blades YouTube channel. Uh, And uh, there's just tons of good stuff going on. We will be back on Tuesday, August 29th with famed, barnstormer Andrew King. It's going to be a ton of fun. He is the go-to man when it comes to flying some of the most amazing historic aircraft out there, uh, and also does a lot of flying at the Rhinebeck Air and Drum, so do not miss that. Uh, it'll be a ton of fun. We'll be him then on Tuesday, September 5th at 8 p.m., Dick Rutan will be here with us, uh, the man who flew nonstop around the world, and brother of Bert Rutan, who helped design that aircraft and build it and uh, I'll tell you that is going to be a load of fun as well and then on Tuesday September 12th we're here with Phil Susi, RSO on the SR-71 so lots of fun coming up here on the show and again thank you all so much for being part of social flight and I wish you all blue skies